All right, this morning, if you want to find in your Bibles Galatians, that's kind of where we're going to land. We're going to land in Galatians chapter um, 4, I'm sorry, chapter 3. If you didn't grab a Bible on your way in this morning, maybe grab one now, find page 974. That's where we'll land. Like I said, we're going to do a few other things. I wanted to start this morning by one of my favorite things that that appears as a story in the gospel, or in the, the book of Acts, I should say, in the book of Acts. And it's a story about this guy named um, Barnabas. And uh, so I want to I read it t- together and we could kind of, uh, kind of talk about it for a second. But I really love this story. Great power um, is with the apostles and they're giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Remember that the book of Acts follows the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're sort of new to your Bible, that may help you orient. There's four books that tell us about Jesus, and then one book that comes after that called Acts that tells us about his followers and what they did. And so they're bearing witness, they're telling people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and grace is upon this entire new group of followers, new believers in Jesus There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So this is kind of setting up the context. This tells you a little bit of what's happening in the life of the church. The the spirit falls, people are baptized, the church begins to grow, and this is one of the first vignettes that we see of life in the church. Then we move to this next. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which literally, just if you parse it out, means son of encouragement. Now, you might know a little bit about Jewish tradition, and that Jewish tradition was always the son of so-and-so. Like, they traced everything through the family, the fatherly line, right? So it's very important that I'm Jordan, son of whatever. That marks me not only in terms of my local, my current heritage, but the heritage that goes all the way back to Moses, right? So it's very important that son of bit is really critical. And so what they have done here in this story is that there was this guy whose name was Joseph, son of whoever it was, I don't know, that marked him as a part of the people of God in terms of the ancient Jewish prophecies and plans and books of the Bible, and all of a sudden, all of that gets dropped off, and we have Barnabas, and this is how we'll know him for the rest of the book, who is the son of encouragement. And I just, I know that this is very small and insignificant, but no one has ever called me the son of encouragement, ever. So I like this line, because to me, it's, it's something that is so powerful that throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we only know him as Barnabas. And I think, man, every time you say Barnabas, what you should be saying is son of encouragement, Son of encouragement, son of encouragement. Because that's what people are calling him. Every time they say the name Barnabas, they're not saying Barnabas, they're saying son of encouragement, which is a weird thing to do to somebody. Like this guy must have been awesome. His encouragement must have been so powerful and so immense that all of the church and everyone around him, around him recognizes this in him. And uh, I just can't help but think, man, that's a transformed person, isn't it? That transformed person, so much so that you no longer call me Jordan, we no longer call you John, we no longer call you Mary, whatever. Now we call you son or daughter of encouragement. I'm really moved by that because we've been talking for the past several weeks about, about baptism and what baptism does to us, what it means, and especially the ongoing impacts of baptism upon our lives. And one of the things that we have really tried to hone in on and drive home is this idea that 
that our baptism, though it happened long ago, has ongoing effects in our life. Owen's going to help me demonstrate this from last week. We ended here. We'll start here this week. All right. What Barnabas understood was that. Wouldn't it have been funny if I just like biffed right there? Never would have lived that down. What Barnabas understood that so many people misunderstand is that he was but one thread in this long line. If you take this rope, if for those of you who weren't here, this rep, no, pull it taunt. Come on, keep going, Owen. Don't quit early on me, son. Come on. <laughs> All right, there we go. Now you can drop it. Good. We used this last, last week to talk about, this is 50 feet of rope, if you imagine this as roughly 5,000 years of biblical history, right? Barnabas understood that he was one thread that was woven together in baptism, not only into the grace of God, but into the people of God, and not only into the people of God in this moment, this might represent about 100 years if you were to trace this entire line, this might be our lifespan. He understood that he was but one part of a long trajectory of God's grace and power in the midst of his people. And when we think back to our baptism, when we remember our baptism, we remember that we also are tied in just as Barnabas was. And we are called, just as Barnabas is, to be that kind of spirit within the church that is the spirit of encouragement. To be the kind of people who are worthy of renown, worthy of names like this. We've focused on baptism. We talked about um, that baptism gets confusing because it is a process that all churches practice. All churches will do them, but they do them very differently. And so it can be very confusing. So we've been working through kind of five different, uh, five different dimensions of baptism, The first dimension is one that we're very familiar with, the salvific dimensions of baptism. And what we mean by this, other than just being a fun word to say, is that there's something like salvation is a word that we can use to sort of wrap up what happens in baptism. Because what happens in baptism is that we are Die, we die in the waters of baptism as Jesus died, and we rise to life as Jesus rose to life. So there are salvific implications. The victories of Christ are now my victories as well. What did Christ have victory over? He had victory over sin. Sin no longer has any hold on him. He is a new creation. The old ways of living mean nothing. What does it mean to die and rise? Do you think you'll go back to the ways that it was to be human after you've risen from the dead? No, things are completely different, right? He is dead to sin. The devil has no power over him. And death no longer has any power over him because he's conquered it, right? So all of the power and life that happens in Jesus' life, death, Burial and resurrection is now imputed. It is given to you and me that we too might have victory over our moral wrongs, over the devil who wants our lives, and over death which will eventually come to all of us, right? So victory over these things. Secondly, we talked about how there are moral implications. It's not just that you got baptized once and now you have eternal life and you're set forever. But now, no, I do have the hope of eternal life. I am set forever, but I need to continue to walk in this new character that has been transformed. That if a moral transformation hasn't happened in me so that I'm now living a new kind of life. If I'm not living victory over the sin in my life, over the devil and over death, have I really had a transformation, right? You need both the salvific side and, of course, the moral transformation that happens in us as we begin to walk this life of faith. 
We are familiar with these as a movement. Our churches hit this stuff heavy. We are less likely to talk about the other, other elements of baptism which we, um, that we've hit in this series. And the first that we talked about was missional. That Jesus, for instance, is the perfect example of this. Jesus did not need a moral revolution. He certainly didn't need salvation, as it were, or as we understand it. Rather, he has a new purpose. Jesus before was a family guy. Jesus before was a carpenter. Jesus before, you can imagine, being a very good citizen of Nazareth, right? Wherever he landed, he was probably a good dude working and doing good things there. But now Jesus enters the waters of baptism, and he comes up, and now his eyes are fixed on one purpose, and that purpose being the kingdom of God putting it first. And baptism is the same way. When we were immersed in the waters of baptism, we came up again, we were changed, not just salvifically, not just morally, but missionally. Now there is a new purpose in my life. Because I'm a part of the church, because I'm a follower of God, I now seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Last week, we focused on the ecclesial, which is just a fancy, another fancy way of saying church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, if you didn't know that. Um, And so this is just saying there's a churchly change. That my people are now the followers of Christ. If you say, who are Jordan's people? We used to say this, they used to say this in Tennessee. They'd say, who are your people, right? Which kind of meant not just like who is your family line, but like where are y'all located? Because everybody knew where everybody was, right? Uh, So who are your people? When people say that to me in Tennessee, who are your people? I would say, Christians, that's my people, Right? I don't have another people. That's my people. Right? Once we have been immersed in the waters of baptism, we have become a part of one another. In fact, there is something that is deeply corporate about baptism itself. No one does it themselves. In fact, it's always two people. Right? One person steps into the water with the other another person and, and dumps them in, dips them up again. Right? It's a communal experience. We need each other. Last week, um, I had a conversation with Sally. You, some of you know Sally and Tom. Uh, Tom had went through this really terrible um, spell of, of bad health a few weeks back, really dangerous, possibly lose him. It was so bad. And Sally was telling me that as she was, as she was dealing with the, me- the medical issues and she's talking with doctors and trying to figure things out, she didn't think at all about family. She didn't think about somebody coming up and helping her. She was just so engrossed in the in the moment and in the tragedy and in the fear and in the problems that she was facing. But what she told me last week was that what rose around her and Tom were texts from y'all and phone calls from y'all and and, and offers to help and and can we mow your lawn and, and what do you guys need? And she said, I didn't even anticipate, I wasn't even thinking about it. And around me rose this great chorus of care. And that's y'all, right? That, that's what we are called to be. That's what baptism is all about, right? It isn't just about writing your relationship with God, but rather inaugurating your life into a new kind of community, a new kingdom, a new people that begins to shape it in new kinds of ways so that the stories that we read from Acts and the story I just told you about a few weeks ago are both true within the community of faith, are both true amongst you as we recognize that our baptism was not just about me and Jesus, but about us and God. I love how, um, how Romans puts it, Paul puts it. There's, there's the verse. If you want to take a snapshot, these are the verses. I couldn't fit them all in um, in that. 
Or, or if you want to know the verses, I can let you know later. But I love this little passage from Romans. As he's winding down his sort of um, uh, rebuke of the churches and their positions and dealings with Roman governments. He says in Romans 13 eight about the church, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I mean, you could put that on a bumper sticker, right? Like, that's good. Wouldn't it be awesome if somebody sort of walked in here and they said, you know, the one thing I could say about uh, Oakland Drive Christian Church, uh, the music was all right, the preacher was kind of ugly, but man, they loved each other, right? I mean, isn't that what Jesus is about? That's what, that's what uh, Adrian read for us earlier today. That's Jesus' whole point. He says, I'm giving you a new command. I'm calling you now. If you're going to be my disciples, you have to love one another, and the love has to be so real and so visible that people from the outside have to look in and say, that's nuts. That's too much love, right? Too much. It's excessive. We might even say it's reckless. What occurs in baptism, one of our favorite go-to verses is this verse from Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You've heard me probably say it a dozen times, maybe more. But it's a, it's a great verse, and our movement loves it so much because, like I said, we've got those first four uh, books that tell us about Jesus. The next book tells us about Jesus' followers. And this is the first time anyone says, hey, I do believe Jesus is Lord. What do I do about it? So that's kind of important, right? It's just logically, y'all with me? That's just logically important. And so what does Peter say to those people who ask him, Jesus is Lord, what do we do about it? He says this, repent, which is a word that means to turn away from sin, but it also means to turn our opinions towards God so that his opinions and thoughts and wills and desire becomes ours. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus says. And... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this can be very individualized, very personalized, but notice that this is not where things stop. This is not where they stay. Rather, Acts immediately paints us a portrait of what these baptized believers look like. And what does he say about them? He says... He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, them to the, to, uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... Tending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so what do we see in this text? What we see in this text is a social reality. Not only does baptism have salvific, moral, missional, and ecclesial implications, it also has social implications. That is, there is a radical new way of being human. There's a new way of living in the world. There's a new way of being. And that being begins kind of really here with community. Notice how none of this is individual actions. Sure, you might press me on that and say, oh yeah, well probably they prayed by themselves or maybe they read the Bible by themselves or maybe they sang by themselves or maybe they did it in just their own nuclear family unit and they didn't gather with it. Sure, that's all true, but the emphasis here is on the corporate nature of being a Christian. Now they are together devoting themselves to teaching and to breaking bread, to prayers, to fellowship, all of this stuff here 
is corporate in nature. And this, we have to believe, is God's intention. And God made us social creatures. He made us the kind of people who need to connect to others. And yet, the, the, the thing I've noticed about my life, and maybe you've noticed it about your life too, I often want to connect with the worst people. Right? We just... Those toxic relationships, like how many, like we got toxic relationships that you connect, like we connect to all of these things so frequently. And those things that we connect to, they're sort of outside in the world. And so they're very, they're very loose. And you might hang with this person for a little bit and not with it. But, but this is different because this is a group of people who have tied themselves in together in such a way that the word love can be utilized. Because to me, the word love means something specific. It means commitment, right? I can say I love everyone, but I don't ever mean that. I do not love everyone. None of y'all love everyone. You can't possibly be committed to everyone, right? right? We, love is a very specific kind of word. It's a very precious, precious and unique word. And what do we see here? We see this group loving each other. By this, they will know that you are my disciples. You've gathered together and you love each other. There's a community that has gathered and, and what happens is, is as they gather and when the, when the bad times come, they don't start a GoFundMe page, right? And put it out there for the world to figure out. But rather, they sell their possessions, they bring the money in, and they pay the bill. And now, I, one of the things I have to understand, you have to understand when we think back to the early church and they're selling possessions, you have to understand how little they had to sell. When it tells us that Barnabas sold a field, it's not just he had like extra property and he sold that field. He had a family inheritance. He had a line of land that stretched all the way from here all the way to here. It stretched all the way from somewhere around the middle of this, all the way back, right? That, that, that literally the field that was in his family that he sold is probably with them for well over a thousand years. How many of you have family lands? Anybody have family land at all? Nothing, no? Areas? My, my, my in-laws live in this little, I mean, it's nowhere. Let's just call it what it is. Nowhere, Michigan, in the thumb, and they have land that they're deeply attached to. I don't understand that because I don't have a people. My people are the church, right? So I, I don't understand that idea. But if I could just put myself in that situation for a second. I uh, was on, Laura was on the State of Michigan website. And we found out some good news. Found out that 17 years ago, while I worked for the mall, the buckle, in college, I missed a paycheck. So there is a fat C note waiting for me in Nebraska. I just have to send them the info. Boom, yes. I'm already dreaming on what video game. I'm just kidding. Um, but if you can imagine finding out that you have some like family land that was like George Washington's land, and you just didn't even know this whole line of your family was there, and it's been handed down and handed down and handed down and handed down. And here it is. You have land. You just found out. From the state of Michigan website, you have land in Washington, D.C. Handed down was originally George Washington's land worth hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. Is the first thought in your mind, I better sell that and give Tom and Sally that money so they can pay for their medical bills. Because it's not mine, right? It's way I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody here, right? Guilt trips are easy. My question is, what happened in that early church that so bound them together 
that they cultivated a life together that was so deep and so real that Barnabas said, I don't care about my heritage. I don't care about what my family will think. I am perfectly happy to sell this thousand-year-old plot of family land so that you can spend it to buy food for today or medical bills or whatever the apostles did with it. I mean, that's intense. That is a representation of what baptism did to these people. It transformed not only who they were in terms of their own relationship with God. It transformed not only their own way of life, their moral, moral character in this or that situation. And not only changed the direction and purpose of their life so their mission was now transformed. And not only helped them to realize that they're never alone. That they're always now connected to God and to his church. But it funneled itself into real love in such a way that they literally sacrificed heritage for one another. That's intense. That's intense. Think about it for a second. Think about it just for a second the few things that, the things that, that Barnabas would, not, would have had to have no love for. So we'll get there. He had no love for property or money or stuff. He said, meh. He had no love for his heritage, his culture, his nation, right? This is all national stuff. This is tied into what it is to be an Israelite. This is the hope of the past. It's the hope of the future. He had no love for his biological responsibilities. Imagine his relatives standing around him when they find out, no, I sold the family plot of land. That was in our land. That's, our, that's everything to us. What are you doing, right? I mean, you can imagine how irresponsible that must have looked to everyone around him. He must have looked fundamentally insane. This guy's off his rocker. He's joined a cult. Write him off. Why? Because suddenly he had love for God and love for the church. Now what I mean by no love is not hate, right? The Bible uses love, hate, and words sometimes that we sort of attribute emotion to or violence to. What I mean by no love versus love is uh, priority, right? So what happened here is these biological responsibilities, they're no longer his priority. The, the heritage, the culture, the nation, no longer his priority. Property, money, stuff, food, this need, the biological needs of life, these no longer a priority. His new priority is this, a new people. He belongs to God's people. This we see as a social shift. Paul puts it here in Galatians 2, or 3, 27 through 29. I told you to find that in your Bibles. I'll put it up here just in case um, some of you may have closed them or whatever. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have now put on Christ. This is the word that we literally to clothe. Remember I said a few weeks ago, most of the baptisms in the ancient world, and even sometimes in certain uh, Christian sects today, happened nude, right? So you would go naked into the waters, and you would come up again clothed with Christ. That's what's being communicated here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is a new social reality that is at work in these people. So much so that all of the barriers that used to hold them apart now are becoming broken down and crumbling. And now we're forced to face each other in the light and love of Jesus Christ. In fact, this, this, uh, this formula right here is so often, this nor, no Jew, neither Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, male or female, is so often connected to baptism that scholars think that this is probably some sort of baptismal confession. So let's say Peggy is going to get baptized. For the first time this Sunday, she comes up front 
When we have her do a confession, part of what she might confess is a version of no, no Jew or Greek, nor slave or free, no male or female. Or I, may, let's say I was going to baptize Peggy, I might say it over her as I immersed her. Because we have several instances of this. Let me give you these. You've got Romans 10. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Corinthians, um, there is baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free. You can kind of see it. Colossians, again, here there's not Greek or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Now this is a little bit localized to the region in which Colossae was at the barbarians but you can see the commonalities here that in baptism one of the things that was confessed by the church is that the things that separated us are now dead they've crumbled they've fallen they're meaningless they're worthless and so the barriers that used to exist between racial groups are cracked are cracked and broken come down Barriers between economic classes, barriers between men and women. All of these things we see kind of happening right here in our baptism. But what's funny about this list is I was sort of sitting, I was just looking at the, I was just looking at the scripture and I was kind of making a list. Like what, what barriers do we see? And then I, once I had made this list, I was like, oh man, was this in Newsweek this week? Like was this on the, like, this sounds like what we're dealing with today, doesn't it? The world has not figured anything out, have they? I'm not holding out hope that they're going to figure it out next week, just in case you're wondering. But one of the things that happens is that through baptism, we're drawn together in this thing, this, this thing we call the church or the body of Christ or the, the heritage of Christ or the brothers and sisters of Christ or whatever phrase or you want to pull from the New Testament to draw that forward. Like what happens is that we are drawn together and called to look like people who are breaking down this. And that's hard. And that's very messy. And because it's hard... And because it's messy, no progress is made. You with me? Does that make sense? Because it's hard, and because it's messy, society at large can't do it. Why can't they do it? Because there is no Lord who tells them, right, who displays for them. Isn't that what's so beautiful about Jesus? Is that when God, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of the reign, the rule of God is coming close to you. Repent and believe it. And everyone's like, okay. What does that, what does that mean, though? What does that look like? That's kind of puzzling. It's kind of crazy. And so Jesus goes to a different spot in, 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 in Israel. And when he, wherever he goes, it's like the finger of God is just following him. In fact, he says that at one point. If you see miracles, the finger of God is in you, is among you, right? And what happens, there's suddenly, when Jesus shows up, there's suddenly an abundance of food, plenty of food. People who were, who were broken and left to the edges are sort of brought in and healed. People who had appendages that didn't work are now healed, like eyes grow back, ears are open. Like there's something is completely radically transformed because Jesus is in their midst and he is the living embodiment of the kingdom of God, of what it looks like to have the fullness of God's grace. But after he leaves, he leaves the church. And part of the church is that we aren't, bringing eyes back all the time. Like these, these things that Jesus did that only Jesus could do because he was God in flesh. What he left us was a faithful representation of the kingdom of God through love and sacrifice to one another. It began at your baptism and has continued on to this day. 
One of my favorite stories I heard recently from a, a church that I'm connected with, a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, was in the hospital for some back surgery, and they gave him the good stuff, right? So he was loopy. And he was in a room with another person, another guy, and this guy was also there for major surgery, so they were loopy together. <laughs> and one of the things about Jesus is he kind of gets into you, and he messes everything up. And so when you get loopy, suddenly you start talking about things like Jesus. <laughs> so they're having a conversation together, and he finds out that this man is dying of cancer. And he's in for one of his, one of his treatments, a surgery. And as they're talking back and forth, the man says uh, he had never taken his wife to Florida. He always wanted to go to Florida. Um, and my friend uh, was, um, said, you know what? I bet we could take care of that. So he picks up the phone. Of course, I don't know if this is on drugs or off of drugs. I'm not sure how. story breaks down there a little bit. But either way, he makes a phone call to his church and says, I know somebody who is dying and wants to take his wife to Florida. And so their church pooled together money. And they sent this stranger down to Florida with his wife. And he got a text back. Um, my friend got a text back uh, about a week after their, um, after their vacation from his wife who said, we had a wonderful time and he just died. There are moments like that where the church could really shine. So while we look at these things and we say, like, these are really big things. I have no idea what to do about most of this. That's big stuff. And I don't anticipate God putting on Dia's shoulders. Dia, it's time for you to fix racial problems. Steve, after that, you're up for economic issues. John, you're up for men and women. Right? Like, he's not expecting us to fix that. He's expecting us to deal with the mission that's in front of us. Who is the person that is in, right in front of you? And can you do something kind of out of the box and insane, like getting some people to pool money and send them off to Florida so that they enter eternity with at least this good memory? Who knows what happens outside of that? I have no idea. I asked him, is, was he a Christian? And the guy, my friend said to me, I, you know, I didn't, I, I'm not really sure. I don't remember. <laughs> What, what, what did you testify? What did you, no, it didn't matter. None of that mattered. What mattered in that moment was here's an opportunity for me to display the grace of Jesus. And that is what we did. That is what your baptism meant. That is what it's all about. It's that one time in that water for every moment after that to be shaped and recreated that that moment might bring glory to God and grace to others. That's what baptism is all about. And as you pass this rope today, as you head out, I pray that you will remember your baptism. And that if you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. You need to obey scripture and receive it. And if you have received it, you need to let it take hold of you, reshaping you and making you into the Christian that God knows that you can be. Let's stand. We all have a decision to make this morning. Let's stand. And as we sing praises to our God, commit ourselves to following him with more fervor and love.